is what I believe actually making any bit of difference in how I live? Uh, it's one thing to say, I believe this on this side, but is it actually making any difference uh, in how I live and operate? Uh, I've been faced with two, what I think are really challenging questions, and just a series of, I believe, whether you've been in a relationship with God for a few months, a few years, a few decades, I really think this is going to challenge you, because uh, it's going to challenge you to examine, is what you believe, is it making any difference, not just in you, but in the lives around you. And if you're at a place also where you're just examining faith, where you're trying to figure out, I don't know what I believe, I think you're going to be really encouraged today, Good Friday and on Sunday, uh, with to push you towards, well, you, we need to make decisions on what is it that you actually believe. And for me, two questions that I've wrestled with is this. Number one is, what I believe about God, is it even true? Is it even true? Now, here's a premise, uh, maybe a presupposition. We all believe. We all believe. We might believe something different, but at the end of the day, we all have beliefs about God. Even if you're atheist, you still believe. You just believe that there is no God, so you still have belief. And so my question is, that I've been wrestling with, is what I believe about God, is it even true, or am I just making stuff up? Am I just believing what I really want to believe about God? Uh, and the second question that I've been wrestling with is, what impact is what I believe about God having on the life that I'm living? easy to say I believe, but is it showing up? Uh, A.W. Tozer, if you've, uh, I've recommended his book today called The Knowledge of the Holy, and he said this on page one, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And what he's essentially trying to say is your belief about God is going to shape everything. Every decision that you make is a reflection of ultimately what you believe about God. How you run and operate your life, as it were, is a reflection of what you believe or don't believe uh, about God. Now, one of, uh, as I've considered the significance of what I think and what I believe about God in view of these two questions, I've come to uh, what I would just call an unsettling conclusion. Uh, and I'm not excited to share my conclusion with you because uh, it's somewhat embarrassing. I wish I didn't have to tell you this, but I'll be honest with you as I've sat with this. Uh, my conclusion is this. I'm a recovering Christian atheist. I'm a recovering Christian atheist. Uh, recovering in that I can quickly and often slip back into Christian atheism if I'm not careful. And I will define Christian atheism. Let me maybe share a story with you. Uh, and the story is of this. His name was Charles Blunden, and he was the first individual to ever cross Niagara Falls uh, on a tightrope. And this was about 140 years ago, give or take. Uh, and it might not sound like that much now, but 100, it was around 1856, so how many ever years ago, he crossed Niagara Falls on an 1,100-foot uh, tightrope that was three inches, uh, or three inches uh, wide made of hemp cord strung together. So he crosses over on this tightrope and did it numerous times. And this guy was the daredevil of the day. He did this on stilts. Uh, he did this in a sack. He did this in a various ways. But one time he did it in a wheelbarrow. Uh, and he did it numerous times. And on the last time that he did this in this wheelbarrow, uh, someone with great conviction from the crowd, as the story is told, shouted, 
uh, I believe you could do that with a man inside. And Blunden responded very simply, I believe I can as well. Why don't you climb in? And the onlooker obviously said, well, no way. Of course I'm not going to climb in. That would be crazy. But yet there was such conviction, I believe you can do that. But when invited to put his belief into motion, into action, he said, no, 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 I can't do that. And there was this disconnect of what he believed and what he said he believed and actually how he lived. Uh, Craig Rochelle, and this is where I really learned this phraseology in term of Christian atheism, uh, said this, Christian atheism, where people believe in God, but live as if he doesn't exist. Christian atheism is everywhere. There has to be a better way to live. My confession to you, uh, to the Lord, to myself, is simply that I can easily believe in God, but then live as if he doesn't exist. That's my confession. My conviction is I want what I believe about God to show up in how I live. And here's what I mean by this. I absolutely believe God to be a loving God, but yet I can do unlovely things. Yet I can be unloving towards people. I believe with great conviction that God is a gracious and forgiving God, but yet I can withhold forgiveness. I can hold grudges. I believe that God is generous, but yet I can be very tight-fisted. I believe that God is all-powerful, but yet I can worry about the goofiest, silliest things. I believe that God answers prayer, but yet I don't pray like I should and could. Do you see the disconnect? I say I believe this about God, but yet in my life, if I believed God to be loving, then in response and reflection to who God is, I would be loving and kind and generous and gracious and all these things. So my question for you this morning would just simply be, what is it that you really believe about God and how is that belief about God playing out in how you live? If you're honest, would you say, you know what? I'm a Christian atheist as well. I say I believe this, but yet I live my life as if God doesn't actually exist. I think one of the reasons that many Christians are prone to Christian atheism is because we have some really bad ideas about who God is and what God is really like. So let me ask the question, do any of these connect with you of how you think about God? Uh, There are some who think about God as a cosmic cop. He's just constantly trying to catch you doing wrong. So you walk around trying to avoid doing wrong because you know God is out for you. He's looking out for He's looking just to make sure uh, that you don't do wrong, that you don't mess up. Some people view God as, he's just a sweet old man. You ever see like a, a 90-year-old dude and you're like, man, that guy's cute. He's just like a sweet old dude, just trucking along. And I think a lot of people view God as this sweet old man. He's way past his prime. He's out of touch, outdated. And very disconnected, but he's a sweet old man. J.B. Phillips, in a great book called Your God is Too Small, said this, The grand old man is treated with reverence and respect. Look at what help, what a help uh, he was to our forefathers. But he can hardly be expected to cope with the complexities and problems of life today. And so some people view God as, he's not big enough for my issues, my problems. Some people maybe view God as just this cosmic slot machine. 
Now, if you've uh, ever been to Chuck E. Cheese, anyone been to Chuck E. Cheese? Right, some of you who raise your hands are too old to be going to Chuck E. Cheese. So, but you know when you play the games, you get tickets. What do you do with your tickets? You take your tickets uh, to the counter, and the dude at Chuck E. Cheese, you say, here's my tickets. What do, what do you got for me? And I think a lot of people approach God just like we approach the guy at Chuck E. Cheese counter. We take our tickets and say, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. Here are my tickets. What, what do you have for me? What can you give me in response to the tickets that I have collected? I've been good. I've been kind. I went to church. I gave. I served. Here are my tickets, God. Therefore, because I have tickets, you owe me a prize. You owe me something. Some people view God as more of just a talent show judge. Your idea of God is that you're trying so hard to impress him. You're trying so hard for God to look at you and say, what a judge, you've done well. And so we're just so fearful that we live, I, I don't want to miss a step because I don't want God to point his finger. You just missed a step again or you missed beat over here. And our view of God, our concept of God is just this talent show judge and he's just judging us. I think some people view God as just the all-you-can-eat buffet. I really like these things about God. I will talk about the love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God all day. I love that stuff. I love eating that stuff. But I don't want to talk about God who says, repent of your sin. I don't want to talk about a God who tells me that I have to do things different. And so God is just an all-you-can-eat buffet. And I think some people view God as your father. And small f, not large f, as your father. Because scripture, both old and new, refer to God as father. And your thought of God as father is terrifying. Because if he's anything like your father, you want nothing to do with him. Why? Because your dad was distant. He was abusive. He was cruel. He was mean. Or he was just indifferent. And if God is anything like that, you want nothing to do with God. So my question is, and we could go on forever talking about different ideas people have about God, but the question is what you believe about God, is it even true? Or is it stuff that you've made up that is consistent with the life that you want to live? So is what you believe about God, is it true? And how is that belief making a difference in how you live? Uh, C.S. Lewis said it just brilliantly, as he always does. I do not want my image of God. I just want God. And I don't know about you, but that just resonates. I just want God. I don't want God to be like what I want him. I just want God. And I want to live my life in reflection of who God is, who he really is. Not who I want him to be or what I think he should be, but I want to live my life in, in reflection of this is who God is. Now, as I consider uh, the different things that we often believe that lead us towards Christian atheism, I wanted to be honest with you and tell you that a life of belief is really hard. It's easy to say you believe something, but what I'm talking about is taking what you believe and actually living in light of that. That is not easy. Let me ask you this question and just ask, does this resonate with you? I believe in God. And what I believe is consistent with who God is, but yet what I believe does not always translate into how I live. I'm going to guess if we're honest, a lot of us would say, that's me. 
I believe in God, and I believe God to be, it, what my belief is, is spot on, it's accurate. But yet, it just doesn't translate. And I wanted to know you to know, if that connects with you, you're in great company. And I just briefly would look at one story, and there's many stories in, in the Bible of men and women who believed, but yet it didn't translate into how they lived. And the example that I would just give you this morning is the example of John the Baptist. Now, if you would think of someone in Scripture who would have no problem believing in Jesus and living in light of that belief, it would be John the Baptist. He was cousins with Jesus, and even Jesus once said uh, of him, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. So if you would think if there's a guy in the story of Scripture that his belief would line up with how he was living, it would be John. Even John said this of Jesus in verse uh, John 134, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Did you catch that? I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I am confessing that. I am telling you that. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But yet, in Matthew 11, towards the end of John's life, it says this, John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things that the Messiah was doing, and so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah? We've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? What? Are you the Messiah or that we've been expecting, or, you should, or, or should we keep looking for someone else? This is a great question, because if Jesus is not the one, then no one should follow him. So it is a great question. To me, it's just an odd question coming from John the Baptist. John, you just said that you bore witness that this Jesus is the Son of God, but now you're asking, are you the Messiah, or should we expect someone else? So it seems odd to me. He's already told people Jesus is the Son of God, so why ask the question? And if you consider this, hey, guys, go to Jesus and ask him this question. Can you imagine being those guys? Why is John asking that? John's been telling us the whole time that this is Jesus. Why would he tell us to go ask Jesus if he's the one? Now you've got these guys stirring with all sorts of doubt and just, why would John do that? And my answer to this question is, John's question reveals the tension between believing believing and living in light of that belief. There is a great tension in life between what you believe and how you live. And I see this played out in so many different people in Scripture, and I see this in my own life. And I love Jesus' response to John. In uh, verse 4, Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor, and tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Like, at first glance, this is amazing. Like, what an amazing Savior. Blind people are seen. People who are paralyzed, crippled, are walking. Dead people are getting raised back to life. This is amazing. Good news is being preached. Like, this is an amazing, absolutely amazing Savior. But yet Jesus says, and tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. Why would you say that? Can you imagine if you're like, you know what? I've just seen one too many dead people raised, and if I see one more dead person get raised, I'm walking away from this faith. If I see one more person who was blind get healed and they can see, I'm out of here. 
none of us would walk away if we saw these, the miracles that John is being reported uh, is happening. So why would Jesus tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me? And what I wrote down in my journal is this, because the events in our lives have a way of getting us to call into question what we believe. The events in our life have a tremendous way of calling into question, what is it that I really believe? If you caught where John was, he was in prison. He's asking this question, sitting from a prison cell, waiting for his head to be chopped off by a wicked, evil man named Herod. And he sends Jesus this question. Uh, in a great uh, book called The Barbarian Way, uh, written by Erwin McManus, um, he commented on this section of scripture, and he said this, what Jesus was saying to John has been far too barbaric for us to keep in the mainstream of the Christian faith. Jesus was saying to him, John, I'm not coming through for you. I'm not getting you out of prison. I'm not sparing your life. Yes, I've done all this and more for others, but the path I chose for you is different from theirs. You'll be blessed, John, if this does not cause you to fall away. That to me is just, that's hard. And what it reminds me of is believing is not an easy thing. What I mean is it's, it's easy to say something, but I'm talking about living in light of what you really believe, regardless of what's happening in your life. And the circumstances of life have a way of getting us to rethink. And this is what I see with John the Baptist as he's sitting in a prison cell. Jesus, are you really the one? Because I, I figured if you were, I wouldn't be here. I, I wouldn't be waiting for my head to get cut off. And so John had to wrestle with, I believe Jesus to be the son of God, but yet I'm in prison. I'm in prison. As I consider uh, my own journey and the many times where my circumstances began to dictate uh, or at least call into question what I really believe, uh, I'm sure you can relate and connect. We've all gone through prison times, and you might be in a prison time right now where the pain is great, where the disappointment is just so tangible. The hurt is just, you feel it, not just a physical, but in a, it's just there. And all of these things are really beginning to call into question, what is it I really believe? One of the things, I would have to say the thing that has been most instructive, most helpful for me is to come back to, well, what do I really believe? And really this morning, the message was going to be very simple of, I believe he came. And so no matter what season I'm in, no matter the hurt, the disappointment, the frustration, no matter what it is, uh, the thing that has shaped how I walked through the many complexities of life is, I believe he came. Now today, there's Christians all over the world celebrating Palm Sunday, and they are celebrating that he came to Jerusalem the week before what we celebrate is Easter. But when I think about I, what I believe, I do believe he went to Jerusalem, but I believe he came. I believe Jesus showed up. I believe Jesus came to earth, lived amongst us. So when I say I believe he came, this belief 
is shaping how I walk through life. This is what uh, the Gospel of John says. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him, and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. Just in case you didn't catch or pick up, the Word is God. And then in verse 14, it says this, The Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So where I will stretch myself and where I invite you to be stretched as well, you cannot just stop and say, well, I believe he came. You have to push good questions, beget more questions. So your next question is, if I really believe he came, then I have to wrestle with the question, why did he come? What was the point? Why did he need to come? Why did he show up? And so that's the question I've been wrestling with is, I do believe he came, But why did he come? And how you decide to answer that question will largely shape whether or not you will live life as a Christian atheist, believing one thing but not really translating into how you live. And here's how I answer the question. This is kind of a takeaway for you today of why I believe he came, answering why did he come? I believe Jesus came to make a way for you to be with him for eternity. That's it. Why did he come? I'm not saying that's the only reason he came, but if I could give you the biggest picture possible, the macro level, I believe Jesus came to make a way for you to be with him for eternity. I wrote it down in my journal like this. Jesus is not concerned most with the here and now. Rather, he is using the here and now and all that happens to prepare us and those around us for eternity with him. This is not to say he doesn't care about you and your circumstance or situation, but what I am saying is what he cares most about is your eternity. He cares most about your eternity. I think one of the things that life just has a way of tricking us is we just get so fixated on what's happening now, on the brokenness of this relationship, the, the hardship of this trial that I'm in, and we just get fixed on what's in front of us, what's happening today, what's happening next week, what might happen next month. And we lose sight very quickly of amazing thing that the Bible teaches, is that you were created for eternity. You were not just created for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. You and I were created for eternity. Ecclesiastes says it very well. He has planted eternity in the human heart. You weren't just created for this. You were created for an eternity with God. And the reality is that we will either spend eternity with God or we will spend eternity apart from God. And what Jesus has done is he came to make a way for you to be with him forever, in eternity, in heaven. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Letters to Malcolm, said it very well. Though we cannot experience our life As an endless present, we are eternal in God's eyes. That is in our deepest reality. The deepest sense of who you are is you were created for eternity. And it's either going to be spent with God or spent apart from God. And if you're wondering, 
I'm talking about spent with God in heaven. We're spent with God in the reality of hell. And if you want to know what hell is like, it's the absence of God. It's the absolute absence of light, of love, of just the presence of God. But Jesus came to make a way for you to be with him for eternity. Again, in scripture, Jesus is always teaching about eternity. He's always putting on our hearts and our minds, you're created for eternity. That's what I'm teaching you. He says in Matthew 4, Jesus is fresh out of the desert being tempted. And he says this, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. You see, don't make your life about right now. Why? Because the kingdom of God is near. Your eternity is here. He goes on, and and, uh, Peter actually says this, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Why did Jesus come? To make a way for you to be brought home safely to God. Because we couldn't do it ourselves. So Jesus came to secure our eternity. One more verse, and I think... I think this is probably one of the more, if not most profound questions Jesus ever asked. You might disagree, but I have the microphone. So I think this is the most profound question Jesus asked. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And here's the question. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? What good is it if you get everything here but yet you spend eternity apart? What good is it, Jesus asks? What if you get the the applause and the recognition and the fame and, and the money and whatever else it is you get but yet You forfeited your soul. I don't want to be a Christian atheist. I mean, I don't want to believe that Jesus came to make a way for me to be with him for eternity, but then I live my life in light of just the here and now. So the question I want to finish with uh, very quickly is, how should knowing and believing that Jesus came to make a way for me to be with him for eternity, how does it shape my everyday life? Because I really don't want to live like a Christian atheist, saying I believe, but then it just doesn't translate. And I have three words written down in my journal that I wanted to finish and just leave with you. And uh, these are three words that are helpful for me in understanding what a life lived like with eternity in mind looks like. And number one would be this, hope. If Jesus came to make a way for you to be with him for eternity... What that stirs in me every day is hope, knowing that Jesus came to make a way for me and those around me uh, to be with him for eternity gives me hope uh, despite current pain. Because I can constantly just remind myself, this won't last. And this is not the message of suck it up, deal with it. This is the message of what we live in here and now, what we experience, whether it's pain, hurt, disappointment, frustration, whatever it might be. I can tell you because of what Jesus has done, because he created you for eternity and he made eternity in heaven with God possible, I can live with incredible hope. Okay, the Apostle Paul said this very well, and this is a man who is very familiar with suffering. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, 
are, for our present troubles are small, and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we cannot see will last forever. This is Paul, a man familiar with pain and suffering, says, this won't last. 50, 60 years, that's nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. And what is happening right now is actually being used for my eternal good and the eternal good of those around me. So knowing that Jesus came to secure my eternity fills me with hope. Fills me with hope that there's more. There is more. The second word I would give you is this, is joy. Knowing and believing that Jesus has secured a home in heaven for you for eternity can transform any prison you might find yourself in to an actual joyful moment. I had uh, this past uh, Friday, uh, uh, the gentleman that makes a lot of signs uh, that we put out, like on the street, the A-frame signs and some other signs around the church, um, I went to pick up some signs uh, from him, and I was supposed to be there at 4.30, and I got there at 4.35, and so I walked into the store, and I said, listen, I just, I'm really sorry, and I've, I've, we've talked before, and I said, hey, I'm sorry I was five minutes late, I didn't mean to hold you up, because he was supposed to close and be home by 4.30. Uh, and he just said something. I didn't understand what he said, but he's like, that's all right. It's just the way of karma. I was like, oh, karma. You want to, let's talk about karma. That was my invitation of he wants to talk about karma, so let's talk about karma. And so I was able to talk to him for an hour and a half. And uh, I was really able just to, just to ask him questions. When you talk about karma, what do you mean? Like, what do you believe about karma? And I was just able just to ask thoughtful questions, and he was just so excited to share with me what he believes. And I was able to ask some questions about how what he believes is actually showing up. How does it work in his life? And when I was asking about karma and how all that works, and, um, uh, and he started sharing a, a little bit about reincarnation, I was like, well, that's fascinating to me that you believe in reincarnation. I was like, so how does reincarnation work? How many times does one have to cycle through life before you stop cycling through life? And he's like, well, that's a great question. The best evidence that we know is 84 times. And I was like, really? How does, uh, uh, all right, 84. Like, and so my, I asked him, I was like, listen, I just, if that's true and reincarnation is real, and if you know anything about reincarnation, the general principle is you come back again in the next life to pay for the sins in this life. And so you cycle lower and lower and lower. And so I just asked him, if that's true and that's what you believe, and in theory, you'd have to cycle through 84 times before you get to what you would call bliss. How do you have joy in your life? If you know that this life will end and you'll just cycle through the pain and the brokenness and the hurt again, where does joy come from? And he just, I never thought of that. And so I was able to share with him, you know, I have joy, not because of what's happening in my life, but as I consider what Jesus has done for me to secure an eternity with him, that as soon as I die, I am with him. There's no cycling through this again and again. And I said, there's a great story in the Bible of a guy who lived his whole life just as a bad dude. And he looked at Jesus in his last breath and said, Jesus, would you remember me in your kingdom? 
Jesus said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. To me, it gives me incredible joy to know that the eternity that he has for me, for you, for those who believe in him, he calls paradise. And knowing that Jesus has just secured an eternity, a home in heaven for me, it can transform any prison moment into a joyful moment knowing that he's got greater things in store, greater things ahead. The last word that I wrote down in my journal and still answering the question, how should knowing and believing that Jesus came to make, how should it shape every day? And the third word I wrote down was just this, gratitude. Knowing and believing that he came to secure my eternity stirs in me gratitude, gratitude directed towards God for doing for me what I could just never do for myself. And uh, again, going back to the conversation, he's like, you know, one of the things I just don't like about what you're saying uh, is this idea of repentance. I was like, yeah, I know, it's, it's, I don't like it either. But I said, you know what? I live my life repenting, not in hopes to get something from God, but I live my life in repentance because he's already given me everything. And it just stirs in me. This desire, if I just want to live the life that God wants me to live, in gratitude towards what he has secured for me in eternity with him. See, I don't want to live my life about myself in hopes that one day I'm going to get to God and be like, I tried as hard as I could, I, I hope it's okay. No, I want to live my life in repentance saying, I don't want to be selfish and arrogant and prideful and I don't want to be that guy. I just want to be the guy that's filled with so much gratitude for what you've done. It is my joy to live the life, God, that is honoring to you.